Well, good evening. Uh, we are in part two of the message, Be Who You Say You Are. And I just want to remind you uh, what we ended with in the last message, that we don't need to give the enemies of Christ ammunition to attack the church or the gospel because of our inconsistencies, that we need to stand our ground and live out our faith. This is no time for the church or the people of God to be backpedaling. We may be isolated more than we've ever been. We may be learning a new normal, but that does not mean that the world is not watching to see how we respond. And obviously one of the key ways they're watching is what we post on social media, what we say, how we communicate with one another. So we're in part two in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through chapter 4, verses, verse 11. And this is the last message in the faith under fire series. I, I, I got to looking at this and I divided it up into these two parts because I, I realized that just using my sanctified imagination that the early church is probably a lot like us. Persecution is starting, hard times are starting, the church is being driven underground and they really were probably praying every day, Lord, bring justice, bring justice, deal with Nero, change his heart. Don't let us go through this persecution. And they are praying for judgment and for justice. Isn't it interesting that we pray for judgment and justice on others, but we always pray for mercy on ourselves? That's because we are by nature very self-centered. In fact, I wrote in my notes uh, earlier today that Frank Sinatra is the patron saint of selfish saints because the theme song of the selfish saint is, I did it my way. I did church my way. I did worship on my terms. I gave on my terms. I served on my terms. I loved on my terms. That won't work. That's why Peter says, sanctify Christ in our lives because nothing goes beyond the notice of God. Chuck Swindoll uh, wrote these words, we wonder why doesn't he do something about evil? Why does he let it go on so long? Because God's timeline is infinite. He doesn't close his books at the end of the month. It may take a lifetime or longer before justice is served, but in the end, God will be just. In verses 13 and following, Peter is giving us some practical advice in living in times of trouble. And, and there are like six bullet points here that I want to give you. Number one, remember who you are in Christ. That's verse 13. Remember who you are in Christ. This ties back to the Beatitudes, to what the blessed life looks like. And several times, Peter uses this word blessed or happy or fulfilled or content are you. Remember who you are in Christ. Secondly, don't panic, verse 14. Don't panic. Uh, this is a pandemic, but we are not supposed to panic. We know that there's a God in heaven who rules and overrules, who sees and knows beyond what we see and know. We don't have to panic. The world panics. 
The church needs to walk in the calmness and the confidence of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, don't be troubled, verse 14, the last part of verse 14. By the way, this is the same root that Jesus uses in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be troubled. Number four, make Jesus Lord, verse 15. Make Jesus Lord, verse 15. Turn your problem into a prayer. Lord, you're in charge. I give this to you. One of my favorite stories about the late Stephen Olford is he said, you know, when, when the devil would come knocking at his door, he would turn to Jesus and say, over to you, Jesus. You go answer the door. You, you, you tell the devil what he needs to do. Number five, be a witness. Ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. You see, when Jesus is Lord and when I'm a witness, then I take my fear to the Father and I take my helplessness to the Helper. And then I'm ready to give an answer. And then verse 16, stay clean before the Lord. This has to do with our integrity and with our character. Again, Peter is talking to a church that is in the early days of a growing persecution that will get worse. Eventually, Peter will lose his own life. He will be martyred for the faith. And he's trying to remind them of how they need to think and act in a time of persecution, when Christians were being presumed to be some weird cult group that drank the blood of their founder and ate the body because they didn't understand the Lord's Supper. All these lies and things were going on uh, about uh, the Lord's Supper and about Christians, and, and Peter saying, you just need to get ready because it's going to get worse. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. <clears throat> you know, God doesn't always tell us why we suffer. Sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it's not. The question is not why do we suffer, but the question is what do we do now in light of what we know? That's the whole story of the book of Job. God never told Job why he was suffering. He never knew what was going on in heaven in this dialogue between God and Satan when God said, Have you considered my servant Job, who is blameless, upright, and fearing God? Job wasn't suffering because of sin. Now his so-called friends thought he had to have some sin somewhere for him to be suffering like this because that was their theological bent. But sometimes we don't know why we suffer. It makes no sense. We have no answers. One of my favorite statements of Warren Wiersbe was that we do not live by explanations. We live by promises, the promises of God. So remember, we covered the first two points in the first message. And now we look at point number three. These attitudes grow out of the soil of a grounded life. These attitudes grow out of the soil of a grounded life. Remember, context is key. And the context of everything Peter says here is suffering. And it is in the context of unjust suffering. Not suffering because you did something wrong. 
unjust suffering. And Christ is our example in that. <clears throat> so look at verse 18, chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins once for all. That's the finished work of Christ. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Now, I, I just have to tell you, and it's going to get worse. I just have to tell you, I don't know how an uneducated fisherman threw this many words together and this many thoughts together. These are tough words and chunks of words. They are difficult to interpret. They are complicated. And anybody that tells you they've got all of this figured out about proclamations to the Spirit and the patience of God and all that and then Jesus descending, anybody that tells you you've got that figured out, let me just give you a, a verse out of the cat apocrypha. Liar, liar, pants on fire. They don't have it figured out. In fact, Martin Luther, who's the leader of the Reformation, which is a reason we have the evangelical church today, this is what Martin Luther said. He was no dummy. This is what Martin Luther said. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. Now, he said it in German. I can't say it in German, so I'm doing it in English. This is what Martin Luther said. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. Now, can I just be honest with you? If Martin Luther couldn't figure it out, I don't think I, I, don't think I can either. And anybody that thinks they've got it all figured out doesn't. In fact, I counted up 34 different interpretations of these verses. 34. 3, 4. 34 different interpretations. Can we all say we don't agree on this because we don't understand it all? Now, it's inspired by the Spirit. But you got to go really, really deep with this, and then your conclusion may be off a little bit. But let me give you some quick thoughts on chapter 4, chapter 3, and then into chapter 4. Verse 18, he's talking about the cross. We can agree on that. Verse 19, there is a proclamation, a proclamation. Let me stop right here and just clarify something about this. This is not a word for evangelism. When he, he says he went to proclaim, this is not a word that we use for proclaiming the gospel. This is the message of a herald proclaiming the victory of a king. This is not for salvation, but this is a proclamation of Jesus saying, I told you so. I told you so. And when it says to the spirits now in prison, no place 
is that word used for people. No place is that word used for people. To the spirits now in prison, it's always used of angels or demons. It is never used of free moral agents, which is what we are as human beings. We're free moral agents. We make choices. This, and we can be redeemed from our choices. This word, the spirits in prison, most likely the fallen demons. I know the Apostles' Creed says that he went and descended into hell, but that's not really the word that is used here. It is the word for Hades, a temporary place. We'll look at that in a minute. Verse 21, resurrection. So we have the cross, we have the proclamation of a victory, then a resurrection. This is the timeline. Then a resurrection, and then exaltation. Exaltation. So look at it. Christ died for our sins. Verse 18 is as concise a statement of the gospel as you can find anywhere in the New Testament. The just for the unjust. Now, as I was working on this, I, I, I just wrote this down. The just or Christ for me. And you could just write above that word unjust, me. Christ for me, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now, that is a very technical term. It means to gain an audience at court. So Jesus gains an audience for us because of the cross and the re resurrection and his exaltation. He is our access, our audience to the Father. Verses 19 through 20, very difficult to explain. Hades is not hell. It's a temporary place. Jesus did not descend there to give people a chance to repent. Once a person dies, their eternal destiny is sealed. There is no purgatory. The word purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory was established to raise money to try to get people out of hell, which no church, priest, preacher, pope, or anyone else can do. Our fate is sealed in this life. Jesus did not go to proclaim, well, all you people that died in the Old Testament, all you people that died during the flood, well, Noah, now I'm going to give you a chance. You've been in hell long enough that you're ready to get out. Now's your ticket to get out. That is not what he did. That is not what he did. He went to declare his victory over the demons and the devil of hell. He said, I accomplished the work. He rose and he ascended. His resurrection ensures our resurrection. One day, the graveyard is going to be the liveliest place in this world because the dead in Christ are going to rise. You see, Jesus is not in a tomb. He's on a throne. He's resurrected. He's ascended. The baptism reference symbolizes deliverance just like the ark. In context, it's not be saved by being baptized. Baptism doesn't save. It illustrates what Christ has done for us. It always symbolizes a break in the past. Peter uses baptism and the Noah and Ark illustration to show us an escape from judgment 
because of wickedness. Now, the Jews and Christians always look at the time of Noah as the time of ultimate wickedness. And Jesus said, it's going to be like the days of Noah when he returns. That's why we live with an expectation of the return of Christ. Peter uses two illustrations of Christ's victory. And again, I don't want to get down in the weeds. I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts here. Noah and the ark. The water lifted the ark. The ark was where Noah and his family were saved, sealed, shut in with God until the waters receded. So in Noah and the ark, if you want to write in your notes or in your Bible, water was the agent of judgment. That's how God judged the earth, was by water. The next time it's going to be by fire, but this time it was by water. The ark was the agent of salvation. It is what God used to save Noah and his family when the flood and the judgment came. Baptism is a sermon. It's an illustration. Life, death, resurrection. All of these illustrations are to bolster us in our faith that no matter what is going on around us, Christ is victorious. No matter what the world says, he's our salvation. He's our deliverance. He's our hope. Now look at the application of truth. And this is a long section of scripture. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. That, that's a picture, that's a military term, of a foot, of a foot soldier that's ready to fight the battle for moral purity. That's the context of arm yourself because of what he has said in chapter 2, what he said in chapter 3, and what he's about to say in chapter 4. That as soldiers of the cross, as soldiers of Christ, we are to arm ourselves because we're in a battle for moral purity and the integrity of the church. Arm yourselves also with this purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men. In other words, we have a change of motivation, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued, past tense, a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they, the world, the pagans, the Roman government, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. What he's saying is, is that the world looks at us and says, why, why don't you get drunk anymore? Why don't you sleep around anymore? Why don't you act like us anymore? You're making us uncomfortable by this change in your lifestyle. We are to be salt and light. Why? Because the world is dark and the world is decaying. And Peter is saying, you used to live that way. That's the way the Gentiles, he's using that in the term of lostness. That's the way the Gentiles live. 
and they are surprised that you don't do that anymore. One of the greatest witnesses a new believer has is when he changes his behavior. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. <coughs> therefore, remember what therefore is there for? For what's it there for? Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Remember what I said about Mark Twain? It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that bother me. It, it, all this verse 5 and 6, man, that gets, that gets muddy. But any of us, children, young people, adults, we can understand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He's calling the people of God to be a praying people in the midst of pressure and in the time when their faith is under fire. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things, all things about our lives, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this, this pagan world is looking at the church and they're going, what is the deal with these people? And Peter is saying, you're going to suffer. Here's how you stand for Christ in the midst of suffering. Therefore, stand up, stand up. If we must suffer, let's suffer for doing good. Again, that phrase, arm yourself, that military metaphor. What are we to arm ourselves with? Ephesians 6, the armor of God and the word of God. We put on the armor of God for our defense in Ephesians 6, and the sword of the Spirit is our offensive weapon. We arm ourselves with the word, with the armor, all that God says about who we are in Christ. The only time this verb is used in the New Testament, arm ourselves with weapons or to put on armor, it is an aorist middle imperative, literally to put on as armor. Just like a Roman soldier puts on armor, you arm yourself with God. Verse 2, we've been saved. It's no time to backslide. Basically, what he's saying is when we sin, we live out of the will of God. We disobey the will of God. We are to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ. We are to walk fully armed in resurrection power. Verses 3 through 5, God changes our want to. We aren't like we used to be. Verse 6, he's dealing with those who are now dead at the time that he wrote this letter. And the gospel is for the living. He is not saying there, again, there's a second chance to be saved after you die. That is why it is important for us to share the gospel 
with those who are living. Remember the story of the rich man in hell and Lazarus? What a, I mean, what a story. Would you go tell my brothers so they don't end up here? No, uh, they have the law and the prophets. And even if one was raised from the dead, they wouldn't believe. But it's still our responsibility to share the gospel. It's people's responsibility how they respond. So how do we live? Peter gives 10 commandments for living out our faith under fire. 10 commandments for living out our faith under fire. Number one, use sound judgment. Verse 7. Don't, don't be one of those people who goes, I, I can't believe, I, what was I thinking? I just, I can't believe. Use sound judgment. Use your head. I mean, that's why, that's why God's got it attached to your neck, which is attached to your shoulders. Use sound judgment. We know what sound judgment is because God's word is truth. That's sound judgment. Secondly, pray. Second part of verse 7, pray. Don't just talk about prayer, pray. Thirdly, love. Remember that old song? Well, some of you don't. You're not old enough to remember. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just a little love. We need to love people. Love and love for God and love for other people is one of the most attractive things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves those that nobody else would love. So we're to love. Number four, be hospitable. Be hospitable. Verse 9, be hospitable. Show hospitality to people. Be gracious to people. Number five, use your spiritual gifts. I don't know what your spiritual gift is, but if it's hospitality, if it's mercy, what, what, use your spiritual gift to serve other people. It, it, remember, this spiritual gift is in the context of other things. This is about our witness to the world and how our spiritual gifts are tools of evangelism. In fact, I like what Elmer Town says about spiritual gifts, that all the serving gifts work together in the body to make the body an evangelistic tool in the hands of Christ. The church body as an evangelistic tool by using our serving gifts to tell other people and to show other people the love of Jesus. Number six, think it not strange, verse 12. In other words, don't be shocked. Don't be bewildered. Don't be surprised. I, I can't believe. You know, the only people that are shocked by this is people that have bought the lie of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel because they thought God died to fill their bank account, and they thought God died to name it, claim it on whatever they want. You know, go out and claim your car for Jesus and go out and, and claim your boat and your house for Jesus. The only people that are disappointed in times of persecution are people that have bought a false gospel. So don't be one of those that think this is strange. This is the norm. Persecution, problems, pressure, suffering, that's life because we live in a fallen world. Rejoice. Rejoice. Isn't it funny that, it's not funny, but it, but it is that he comes right out of, don't be shocked and bewildered. Rejoice. Rejoice. Celebrate. 
that you have a living God that one day you'll be taken out of this world and into his presence and you'll worship with him and you'll adore him. And the Bible says we will serve him there. Rejoice. Number eight, verses 15 and 16, don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by suffering. Now let's admit, we all are hoping that suffering never happens to us. And we don't mind praying for other people who are suffering, but we just hope we never have to suffer. But, but we shouldn't be surprised with suffering. It's the world we live in. Number nine, big one, glorify God. Glorify God. And the last thing, walk by faith. Verse 19, walk by faith. I love the line in this song. Like a bride waiting for her groom will be the church waiting for you. Every heart longing for our King. That, my friends, is how you live when your faith is under fire. Like a bride waiting for her groom. We'll be the church waiting for you. You know how to put all of this in perspective? Do what it says at the end of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He may not come in our lifetimes. He may, he could come today or tomorrow or 10 years from now or 100 years after we're gone. But we should live expectant that this world never gets the last word on what's going to happen with this world. My father gets the last word. And in light of that, I need to live soberly. I need to think about these Ten Commandments about how I live. And I need to make myself... A little checklist and when pressures come and fires come and and problems come what do I need to work on in this list of Ten Commandments on how to live under fire let me pray for you father I pray for those that are suffering and hurting and don't understand I pray for your grace that it would be sufficient abundant overwhelming I thank you, Father, that we can live to your glory even in times when this world just seems to stink in so many ways. Yet we have hope in you. Lord, as a church family, as a Sherwood church family, as, as the corporate church family of churches of every tribe and tongue and every denomination of those who call upon the name of the Lord, we want to be a bride waiting for you, our King, our Lord, our Savior, who will have the last word. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Amen.